This morning we come to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and what we're really looking at is we're going to be looking at James's admonition to, to teachers, to preachers, to elders, to Sunday school teachers. I think it would be fair to say to leaders in general. And again, we're going to come back to the issue of the tongue. As I was putting this message together, I couldn't help but think of famous statements made by people in the press that were played over and over and over and over. Some old and some new. One of them that came to mind was the words of a former president that said, I am not a crook. Another one of a president that said, Read my lips. You finish the statements. No new taxes. Well, we know that the one that said I wasn't a crook was a crook. And we know the one that said, Read my lips, no new taxes, raise taxes. Well, let us not forget the other side of the coin as well. You listen to me. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Played over and over and over in the campaign, and we know that it was a lie he in fact had. And then let's not leave the preachers off the list. What about the preacher that looked into the camera with tears running down his face and said, I have sinned again with prostitutes. Our lips can get us in a great deal of trouble. And there is nobody who's held to more accountability of what they say than those in leadership. In fact, the higher the leadership, the more accountable you're held with what you say. Danny Aiken, who's now the president at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and who was one of my advisors, one of the many advisors that I've had on my doctrinal project, was asked about what's the difference between going from being vice president at Southern to being president at Southeastern. And he said, I think the biggest difference is, is I've got to really be careful on what I say because everything I say becomes a soundbite to someone. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that we should all learn to be careful in what we say regardless of the level of leadership that we've got. And that's what we get today from James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Would you stand to honor the reading of these two verses? Remain standing for just a moment of prayer as we ask the Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of His Word. James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. Our Father in heaven, as we come this morning and we listen to the admonition of James, it's my prayer that you would encourage and correct all of us with the rightful and wrong use of our tongues. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In James chapter 1, he began his letter by addressing how a Christian is to think and respond to trials. Then at the end of the chapter, he gave us three recognizable traits about genuine religion. Look at verse 26 and 27 again. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, in other words, if you think that you've got genuine religion, then he gives us three traits. He says, number one, if he does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, that man's religion is worthless. So if you think that you're religious and you haven't got any kind of control over your tongue at all, then James says, I don't know what kind of religion you've got, but you haven't got the religion of the Bible that saves your soul. Second and third, he gives in, verses 20, in verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion is this in the sight of our God and Father. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. Stop. That's what he addresses in chapter 2. Genuine religion is others-minded. Genuine religion gets involved in people's lives. I told Toby when he went off to college and on further to seminary, we hope, Keep this in mind. Ministry is messy. Ministry is messy. And it doesn't matter to what degree you're involved. Whether you're just a member in the church, 
who's involved in the lives of somebody that you're close to, at some time or another, you or they or someone close to one of you is going to go through a trial, and you're going to see that when you begin to help people, ministry is messy. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you see right away, ministry is messy. If you're a deacon or an elder in the church, you often see that ministry is messy. But ministry involves itself in the messiness of people's lives because it's others-minded. Now, it can be wearing, and it can be tiring, and it can be draining, but... By the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we are enabled, we are made able to help others in their distress, and that's what chapter 2 is about. Then, chapter 3, he picks up and begins in chapter 3, verse 13, predominantly to the end of the book, unpacking the rest of what he says in verse 27. True religion, undefiled religion, is also to keep yourself unstained from the world. But before we get to the rest of that, before we get to that, we go back to 126 and we pick up again this theme. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart and his religion is worthless. Now we come to chapter 3, verse 1, and we make the final connection to 126. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. James must have never had to get Sunday school teachers in April to commit for June, for another year, or he wouldn't have said that, right? Let not many of you be teachers, for you receive a stricter judgment. Can you imagine Dale walking around and saying, we need Sunday school teachers for 2007. But listen, think carefully about doing it, because when you stand before the beam of the judgment seat of Christ, you will, re- you will be judged more strictly than anybody else other than the pastor and the deacons and the elders. So, where are my takers? Well, we wouldn't have very many takers, would we? Yet we must take into consideration that James is very clear in what he says. James is very clear in what he says that teachers will be judged more strictly. The truth is, in James's day, there was no more valued profession in all of Israel than teaching, especially religious teaching. Predominantly, the people were uneducated. It was only the wealthy and the privileged that had the opportunity to go off to school, especially classic school, classic education. Because typically, unless you were in the upper class financially, and I don't think that anybody in this building would fall into that category. They're not that I know of. Like Everybody in here really is working class. So predominantly, none of us would have probably been able to have the kind of education that only the wealthy could have afforded in James's day. The wealthy were educated, and the wealthy became teachers, and nobody was more respected than the religious teachers of their day. My, how things have changed. In fact, culture's esteem for rabbi was so high at this time The tradition actually stated in writing that you were to be more concerned for the well-being of your rabbi than you were for your own parents. In fact, if a horde of bandits were to come in and to take captive your family and your local rabbi, the community had the highest priority to redeem, to purchase back, to buy, to ransom the rabbi before any personal family members. Now what this meant was that Some people went into the profession of teaching with wrong motives. There was a good pay for the professional teacher. There was respect for the professional teacher. The teachers were recognized immediately by their dress, their attire, their wardrobe, their appearance, and they were greatly respected. And so what happened was is that a lot of them went into teaching for the wrong motive, with the wrong motive, and for the wrong purpose. Now that doesn't happen today, does it? People don't go into the ministry with wrong motives, do they? People don't become Sunday school teachers with wrong motives today, do they? 
People don't go into the ministry thinking to themselves, it's going to be self-serving. That doesn't happen today. We don't have this kind of problem that James had then, do we? Well, of course we do. So James wants to give a warning. The warning is very clear. Let me give you three warnings that James gives. Two of them are to teachers, and one of them is to all of us. The warnings are very simple. They follow in the order in which they come in the text. Number one, teachers, make sure that your motives for wanting to teach are pure. Number two will be to teachers as well. You better consider the risk. You're going to be judged more strictly. And then number three is for all of us, for all of us, it's really to be flexible and open-minded and understanding that we all struggle with our tongue. All right? Let's take them one at a time. First, to all of you would-be teachers out there, what is your motive for wanting to teach Sunday school or to be an elder or to enter into the ministry? The word that James uses for teacher here is predominantly used for the professional clergy. That's the term that he uses. But let's not make any mistake about it. In light of the overall biblical understanding of teaching, we know that this can apply to a broad, to a broad base of teachers. It's, it's certainly, it is certainly to me, it is certainly to me and to those that are in the profession that I'm in, which is the vocational clergy. It is certainly to the seminary and college professors. It is certainly to those that write Christian literature for a, li for, a, for a living. It is certainly at the very front of the line is me. Right behind me is Adam and Dale and George and Mark and Pastor Randy and Steve. That's right behind me. In this church, that's the pecking order it goes. Then right behind that is going to be the Sunday school teachers. And then right behind them is going to be the rest of the congregation. And if God was to call Memorial Baptist Church up to heaven in one group at one time, and however means that He would to do it, and He was to say, it's time for the judgment to begin with the house of the Lord, the very first person in the front of the line will be me. Right behind me will be Steve. He's the chairman of the elders, see? And then right behind him will be the other elders. In what order? I don't know. Maybe in alphabetical order. But somehow there's going to be the other elders. Then right behind them is going to be the Sunday school teachers. Let me tell you who I think he's going to begin with. It's going to begin with the teachers of the children. See, adults can think for themselves and reason for themselves and study for themselves. It isn't anything for an adult to sit in an adult class and say, wait a second, I disagree with that. I was downstairs today in Sunday school and in Jeff's class and they do a great job in the men's class down there and Jeff doesn't have an easy job. He's got a bunch of cats, not dogs, if you know what I mean. Okay? And they dialogue and they wrestle back and forth. But you know what? Children aren't able to do that. You children Sunday school teachers, I think you're going to have a higher standard of judgment before God than the adult Sunday school teachers because they're like little Play-Doh in your hand. You better have your stuff together. You better have your stuff together. And you know what? The church is so lax when we look for Sunday school teachers for children. We just think to ourselves, will anyone teach the kids? All we need is a warm body in there. You know, the highest qualified teachers in the church ought to be teaching our children because they're laying the greatest foundation for the future of this church. Then the rest of the teachers... And then you. There's going to be a strict judgment. Now, don't misunderstand. James is not trying to discourage anyone from teaching. The church has never had too many qualified teachers. James is, not, James is also not promoting some elitism that only allows the super-educated to teach. What he's doing is warning those who would take on the role as a teacher for the wrong motives. Now, sometimes we get in the circles of pastors and in the ministry, in Baptist circles especially, a lot of times ministers are not very well educated. I do not understand that. I don't understand that just for the sheer fact of 
James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should want to be a teacher. You're going to receive a stricter judgment. Let me tell you something. If I'm going to get judged on what I teach, I want to be the most equipped that I can be on what I'm going to teach. Because I want to tell you what, I don't think that God's going to take the example or the excuse, well, I didn't know for a, for, for, for a legitimate excuse. Well, I didn't know. I didn't go to school. Well, then you should have either been schooled by somebody who could help you out along the way, or maybe you should have reconsidered taking the position of teaching from the pulpit week in and week out. He's not saying it's just for the elitist. He's not saying for the Sunday school teacher as well that you've got to have some Bible degree, although that would be nice. But what he is saying is this. Consider what you're doing. You better be well studied, is what he's saying. Now, some men enter the ministry because their father is a minister. Some men enter the ministry because their mother wants them to be a minister. Some people want to be an elder in the church because they think it's good to have the power or to be in the leadership position. Some people teach Sunday school because it's feeling some need of their own. James is saying to all of those that's going to be in ministry, in teaching, in leading in the body of Christ, be careful about your motives. Be careful about why you're doing it. Why do you do it? I'll be honest with you, when God called me into the ministry, when I, when I began to feel God calling me into the ministry, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it for a couple of reasons. Uh, one was I felt totally inadequate to do it. I mean, I, I listened to my own pastor preach, and he was an expository preacher, and he was a good preacher, and I just thought to myself, I, I could never do it the way that he does it. I felt inadequate to do it. But I'll tell you what else, too. I watched what he went through, and I didn't want to go what he went through. I thought, you know what I'd like to do? I want to go to work. I want to have retirement. I want to have benefits. I want to be able to go and do my work. If I work over, I want to get paid overtime for it. I want to be able to plan for a retirement and have it. And whenever I go home at night, I want to be home at night. I don't want my phone ringing. I don't want people constantly complaining about me, complaining about my wife, complaining about my kids, nagging about every little thing that you do. That's what I heard the church do about our pastor. Somebody was always unhappy with Pastor Jim. He said something in his sermon. He parked in the wrong place. He wore the wrong color tie. His wife did this. His son did this. His daughter didn't do this. I thought to myself, who would want to go and take part into that? And yet, here I am. It begs the question, doesn't it? Why? What about Sunday school teaching? It's the same. It's, a, it's the same. It can be the same degree in Sunday school teaching, right? You're never on time, or you start too early, or you teach too high, or you teach too low, or you read too much, or you don't read enough. I mean, some people just find reason to complain. And by the way, the people that complain like that, they're the same ones that you take to Baskin-Robbins, and they ask for the manager because their ice cream is too cold. You take them to Starbucks, and they say, the coffee's burning my hand. They can never be satisfied. That's just dealing with people. The point is this, though. What is your motive for teaching? So let me ask, it causes me to back up and beg the question. James says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that such will receive a stricter judgment. So I ask this question to the text. Then who should become a teacher? That's a good question to ask, right? Well, there's two qualifications. There's two, there's two standards of measurement for who should become a teacher. Standard number one is, it should be something that you desire to do. We shouldn't have to talk somebody into teaching. You shouldn't have to talk somebody into preaching. I have found that when you have to talk somebody into doing ministry, you'll have to keep talking them in to continue to do the ministry. And so if we want to do a ministry that we can't find someone to do, maybe it's not a ministry that we should be doing. A couple of months ago, the 
People that were leading the Wednesday night stuff were all stressed because they couldn't find adults to come and do something with the children. And I said, hold on, time out. Have you done everything that you can do to find the people? They said, yes. I said, then obviously this isn't what God wants us to do. We didn't think about that. Let's back up and re, let's back up and reorganize. So, who is it that should be teaching? Well, the first thing that we should do, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Mark your place in James chapter 3 and turn backwards, not, turn, turn in reverse order past Hebrews, and go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and let's ask this question first. The question that begs to be asked, James says, not many of you should be teachers, so then who should be the teacher? And the first, the first answer to that question is, is they should want to be a teacher. Look in James chapter 3. We're just going to deal with verses 1 through 7 because that's the overseer teaching position, okay? It's a trustworthy statement. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. It's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It's a fine work he desires to do. There's the first qualification. The first qualification to be a teacher in the church is is that you ought to want to do it. Now, everyone talks and they say, share your call to preach. I've heard so many different calls to preach, you know. What's your call to preach? I'll be honest with you. I didn't have an outer body experience. I didn't have some earth-shattering Charlie... That didn't happen to me. What happened to me was, is every time I would pray on Wednesday nights and, and church on Sunday, I would, there, what would come through my mind is, is, is you need to be preaching. Go and preach. And I would, and I, so I thought, well, I just need to teach Sunday school. So I took on a Sunday school class and I started teaching a Sunday school class and my Sunday school class started growing. And it was the people that were coming say, saying they were learning. They liked it. And, and I just couldn't get away from it. Boy, I tried to push it away. I tried to push it away. So then I did what all wise men who were called to preach should do. I discussed it with my wife. She affirmed. I was confused. No way! No way! You're not called to preach. You're called to be a soldier. If you're going to get out of the army, then you're called to be a police officer or something. You know, listen, listen. I know Jim and I know you and you're misunderstanding something. But I couldn't get away from it. It was a desire that I had. You know what? It's the same way when you're called to teach a Sunday school class. You've got a desire to do it. My wife is a called teacher. She's a blessed teacher. When we moved here from Indiana or from Tennessee, we moved to Indiana, in the first couple of weeks she said, Oh, I miss teaching my class. I want to teach so bad. She didn't see a place at that time, you know, and she really struggled for a couple of months because she's really a called teacher. She's called to teach. Some of you are called to teach. Some of you which I can't imagine Amy White not teaching children. She's so blessed to do it. Brenda. Have you ever been to Brenda's preschool? You know, Miss Brenda and Miss Brenda and Miss Marge and Miss Rita. You need Re Reba. I did read it on her card, too. It's the hurricane. It's affected me. You should... I'm not saying she's a hurricane. Don't twist my words. Listen to my sermon. Can you imagine going to the... You ought to go over to the preschool and watch these women interact with these children. They're called to do that. When I was down in Florida preaching two weeks ago, one of the things that I had to do was I had to preach to preschoolers. My wife said, please have someone take a picture. <laughs> I'm not called to preach to, t pre teach to preschoolers. I, I, they, they, they worry me. They don't give the answers that you want them to give. Some people are just gifted to do that. You know what the, you know what the first step is when you say, well, who should teach then, James? Well, the first thing is, is that you ought to have a desire to do it. But let me tell you something. Desire is not enough. Desire is not enough. You know what else you've got to be? You've got to be qualified. Listen, I, I have a desire to play pro baseball. I'm watching the NLCS and the ALCS. Those of you baseball players, you know what that means. 
I'm watching the ALCS and the NLCS, and, and I'm the guy that will stay up till 2 o'clock in the morning to see. i got to see. My wife and my kids are like, that's so boring. Boring? You ever watched a suicide squeeze take place? You ever seen a catcher pick off a guy on second base? Man, it's great. I love it. I've got a desire to play, play pro baseball. But I'll tell you the truth. I can't catch a high foul ball. Strike out, man. I'm great at strike. I can never play pro baseball. You know why? I've never been a good enough baseball player to play. I'm not qualified to play. Do I want to play? I would love to play. I'd play for way a fraction of the money that they play for. But I'm not qualified to play. Some people have a desire to teach, but they're not qualified to teach. See, desire is not enough. There's got to be qualification. That's why when James says, not many of you, not many of you should take on the role of teaching, because even though you want to do it, are you qualified to do it? Now, besides the having the desire, in 1 Timothy 3, I hope you stayed there for a minute, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Paul lists 15 different qualifications for somebody who's called to teach. I want you to take notice of what he says in chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. But I want you to notice this last part right here. Able to teach. We'll come back to the others in a general statement in just a moment. Do you see that? Able to teach. You see, it's not just enough that you have the desire to do it. Are you are you able to do it? I heard a guy give his testimony once in Alabama about how God had called him to preach and I wanted to get up and I wanted to say, Brother, you have misunderstood. He might have called you to write, but he hadn't called you to preach. You're killing us. You know what? People who are called by God are equipped by God. You know that? Well, turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Turn past 2 Timothy to Titus. I want you to notice... I want you to notice chapter 1, verse 9. Again, he's describing the qualifications of those who are called to teach. Notice what he says. Chapter 1, verse 9. They hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Do you know that teachers of all levels, Sunday school, elder, lay, vocational, need to be able to teach, and need to be grounded doctrinally. The elders and I are working on a document right now where we're going to set up certain hurdles that, that whenever we begin to put new men into the office of elder at Memorial Baptist Church, they're going to have to, there, there are certain things they're going to have to do. And one of them is, is that we're going to require every incoming elder to write in his own words minimal doctrinal beliefs substantiating with Scripture on the key doctrines that make up the church. The order of salvation, the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of God, the Holy Spirit, the humiliation of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of end times, not in when it's going to happen, but in the aspect of a second coming of Christ, a bodily resurrection, the atonement. We've got about 21 of them that we've listed out. And that's what we're going to require. And so if you're going to be an elder in this church, you're going to have a doctrinal statement. We're going to be able to say, we're going to be able to read, what do you believe about these things? Because, see, teachers ought to be sound. But let me tell you something. We're going to move that direction towards Sunday school teachers. And we're going to take the ones that we have currently when we get to that point down the road, and we're going to help them to understand these things so that we make sure that all of our teachers are doctrinally sound. Doctrinally sound. 
because not many of you should desire to be teachers, you will receive a stricter judgment. We want to make them doctrinally sound. Now, let me make an overall statement about all of these other qualifications that he mentions in 1 Timothy. He mentions these... Sta- Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Again, I want to, I want to make another statement about these because I, I want to show you the absurdity of the way it's been understood. A lot of times, people think that to be a pastor or a deacon or an elder in the church or a Sunday school teacher in our context this morning, you've got to be super Christian man, super Christian woman, super Wonder Woman Christian woman, you know? Look at the qualifications. He says in verse 3, they've got to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, but they've got to be gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money, not a new convert in verse 6, not a new convert. By the way, what does it mean to be not a new convert? He doesn't give us, he doesn't give us a definition of not a new convert. He doesn't say, gotta be saved a year, gotta be saved three years, gotta be saved five years, gotta be 21 years old. He doesn't give us that. But what he does give us is this. He does give us the fact that when he writes to Titus, they've got a no sound doctrine, be able to recognize error and refute it. New converts can't do that. So we know that it's not an issue of time as much as an issue of maturity. They must have a good reputation in the community, he says. Now, a lot of times people read this and what they think is they think to themselves, my goodness, you know, nobody can, nobody can attain to those. Well, obviously somebody can, otherwise we wouldn't have any pastors or any deacons or any elders. Here, let, me, let, me, let me negate this for you and let me make the point. Okay? You, you come to somebody and you say to them, you know what, we really think that um, you exhibit the characteristics to be an elder in the church. But this is what they say. They say, well, not really, because I'm unapproachable. I'm the husband of many wives. I'm temperamental. I'm reckless. I'm disrespectable. I'm, unfriendly. I'm unfriendly. I'm ignorant. I'm addicted to wine. I'm confrontational. I'm rough. I'm disruptive. I, and I love money. But you know what? It's okay if I'm all those things because I'm not an elder. Right? It's okay. I can be a Christian. I can be a Christian and I can be unapproachable, have many wives, be temperamental, reckless, disrespectable, unfriendly, ignorant, addicted to wine, confrontational, rough, rough, disruptive, and love money. I can be all of those things because I'm not an elder and I'm not a deacon. So I can be all those things and still be a Christian and be in the church. Anyone agree with that? Absolutely not. These qualifications are the characteristics of a mature Christian. Period. Every one of us should be striving to be the kind of person who's above reproach who's faithful in our marriage, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. That should characterize all of us. So when James says, not many of you should strive to be teachers, what he's saying is this, I believe in conjunction with Paul, all of us should strive to be mature Christians. And you know what? There's a lot of people that meet the qualifications, but that don't have the call. But if you've got the call, but you don't meet the qualifications, you can't teach. You might have the qualifications and not have the call. Don't teach. It's the first thing that we get from James. First thing we get from James is this. Don't take on teaching with the wrong motive, the wrong reason. The second warning that we get from James is this. For those of you that are called and those of you that are qualified, you're called, you have the desire. By the way, the call. What is the call? The call is a desire. That's what it is. Now, it might be some big 
wow, some big event, you know. I've heard of some guys talk about their call, and I was like, wow, huh, that's amazing. That mine wasn't like that. Mine was just this still, quiet voice, this gentle prompting call to ministry, call to ministry. When I went to see my pastor, I didn't know anything about call to ministry. I said, hey, I'm going to talk to you about something silly. I said, I, you know, I thought it was silly. I said, I, for some reason, I just, I mean, is it possible that God wants me to go into the ministry? He throws his hands in, praise God, you finally see what everybody else sees. How's that? You know, that's the call to ministry, see? The call to teach. Some of you are just bent that way. You're wired that way. You just like to do it, okay? But a call doesn't necessarily mean that you should be the teacher because you've got to be called and qualified. To be qualified, you need to be mature. You need to be an example. You need to be somebody who we can say, be like them. We want to be able to say to all of our teachers, to all of their class, be like your teacher. If their name is Mike, we can say it. Be like Mike. Or whatever it is or whoever it is. The second warning that James gives is that teachers will receive a stricter judgment by God than all others. So be careful about taking on teaching without understanding the, the danger. Is that right? Does that make sense? Look at what he says. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, and he puts himself in the category, he makes it inclusive, we will incur a stricter judgment. The whole stricter judgment thing is new to, to many Christians in our society. We have this idea that says this, all sin is sin, and all people will be judged equally. Not true. Not true. If no place else in the Bible taught that there are degrees of judgment, this is enough. James says, teachers will receive a stricter judgment than non-teachers. The writer of Hebrews said the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, submit to your leaders because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. What's he mean by give an account? They're going to be accountable to God for their teaching. Listen. Jesus hated hypocrisy. You see, the teacher is going to be held to a stricter judgment because Jesus hates hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, and therefore you will receive, listen to this, greater condemnation. Later on in the same chapter of Matthew 23, 23 and following, he says, Where do you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Where do you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites? For you clean out the outside of the cup, the dish but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean up the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside may be clean as well. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs with on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones and all full of uncleanliness. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, don't, be, don't, don't go into your classroom and teach to your classes, your little children, now let's be kind to one another when you go out and live an unkind life. You teach to your children that you shouldn't covet, and yet you covet. You teach to your children that you should be forgiving, yet you're unforgiving. You teach to the children that they shouldn't talk bad about others in the class, but yet you go out and talk bad about others at home or at work. On the way home from the car... There's going to be degrees of judgment. You know what the classic text is that teaches degrees of judgment? Luke chapter 12. Turn there. Luke chapter 12. Classic text that teaches degrees of judgment. 
Again, if no place else taught it but James chapter 3, verse 1, that would be sufficient. But we don't have just James chapter 1. We have Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus is teaching, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Verse 36. Be like men who are waiting for their master and when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the doors to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and, and, and have them reclined at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if, he had, uh, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. I gave you that so you'd understand Jesus' explanation. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. Where's that? Hell, right? He says in verse 47, And the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive how many lashes? Many. But the one who did not know it, he didn't know his master's will, and committed deeds worthy of flogging, worthy of going to hell, what will he receive? Few. Degrees of punishment. Now, I know what you're thinking. Immediately what you're thinking is, is you're saying, yeah, but he's addressing this to unbelievers, not believers, because in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Correct. But it doesn't mean that you're going to escape judgment. We're going to be judged. There's a difference between the great white throne judgment for the unbeliever and the Bema, the B-E-M-A, the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ for the believer. The judgment seat of Christ for the believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that God is going to somehow take our works and He's going to test it with fire and that which is genuine will be purified and will take into heaven, but that which is not will be burned up and will suffer loss. And he says this, some people will barely escape the flames. Suffer loss. The quality of our work. You know what James is saying? James is saying, be careful, teachers. Be careful. When you take on that role of teaching, you put yourself in a position for a hotter flame and a greater, and a greater scrutiny of your own life. Don't tell others to live a certain way that you don't live. Don't tell others to do things that you don't do. Don't admonish others for sin that you commit privately yourself. Don't set yourself up as somebody above when you yourself are acting just like those that live in the gutter privately, personally, where nobody sees. God sees all things. Now finally, there's an admonition to all of us in chapter 3, verse 2. Notice what he says in James chapter 3, verse 2. He says, For we all stumble in many ways. What is he saying? What does that mean? How does that tie to the text? What he's saying is this. Be careful about teaching. We all sin. But those that teach are going to receive a greater judgment. And we know that we all sin. Right? We all sin. In fact, the word stumble there is a present active indicative. It means this. We stumble and stumble and stumble 
and stumble. And he says the term in many ways, in various ways, in various degrees. My sin is not your sin and your sin is not necessarily my sin, but we all have sin and we all stumble in various ways. But this is the gist of what he says in verse 2. Notice what he says again. He says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And that's what sends him into the, the horses and the rudder and so forth. And here's the point that he's making. All of us begin our sinning typically by our speech. We say what we're going to do and then we do it. It's our speech. If we can learn to control our tongue, it's such a powerful little vessel that controls us that James's point is this. If you can learn to harness your tongue, you'll harness the rest of you. You'll harness your appetites if you can harness your tongue. You show me somebody who's got a tongue that flaps in the wind and I'll show you somebody who's undisciplined in every area of their life. You show me a gossip and I'll show you someone who doesn't know how to handle money. You show me a tail-bearing, lying, blabbermouth, and I'll show you somebody who watches things on television they shouldn't watch, who goes places they shouldn't go, who acts in other ways they shouldn't act, because if you can't control your tongue and you make no effort to control your tongue, you'll make no effort to control anything else in your life as well. But you find somebody who's disciplined with their tongue. You know, some things are better off left unsaid. You ever heard that statement? Some things are better off left unsaid. Some people are so nosy, they want to know every detail. You know, the only person that deserves to know every detail about every situation is God. We don't need to know all the details. I don't need to know everything going on in somebody else's life. Don't come and tell me every detail. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't get involved and help people when they're sinning and struggling. But see, it all comes down to motive. It all comes down to what's the motive driving finding the details. Sometimes we've got to know the details so we can judge accurately. That's right. Sometimes we've got to know the details so we can judge accurately. But those are few and far between. Typically, when the details are being spilled, it's because we want to judge somebody self-righteously. We want to pick on them and expose their error and their weakness. You see, if we can get the, if we can get the, if we can get the idea off of us and get it on them, we can get the spotlight off of us and get it on them, we can feel better about ourselves. The reasons why some people are constantly tearing others down is because it's the only way that they'll stand above. Do you get that? The reason why some people are constantly tearing others down is because it's the only way that they'll stand above. Let me talk to you just for a moment about your tongue. Are you the kind of person that when you hear that someone has said something about you, that you're bound and determined to chase down everything that was supposedly said, going to confirm every fact. Are you that kind of person? Are you the kind of person that when someone says to you, you know what so-and-so said about you? You've got to find out. You've got to find out what was said. You want to know every detail. And then you've got to go find that person and confirm every fact. Listen, has anybody ever fallen into the trap that someone told you that somebody else said something about you and when you went to them you found that that isn't what was said at all? You got angry and your blood pressure got up and you got all upset and you're going to chase it down. You're going to set them straight. But when you got there, you found out that really the problem wasn't then. It was the middleman. You know, that's the way it often is. The middleman's often the, the one that, that causes the pot to be stirred. You know what we all need to do? We all need to learn a lesson from Solomon. We all need to learn a lesson from Solomon. Ecclesiastes. You know what? I won't normally have you turn to a bunch of Scripture, but you ought to see this. Turn to Ecclesiastes. Turn to, it's in the Old Testament, past Psalms and Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This is just one of those passages that you ought to just mark in your Bible and you ought to memorize it. And every time you're tempted, to, that when someone comes to you and they say to you, can I tell you what so-and-so said about you? 
Boy, do you know what so-and-so said about you? They said about your parenting. They said about your attire. They said about the way you dress or the way you walk or the way you work or the way you talk or the way you raise your kids. You know what so-and-so said about you? You can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. And you can just remind yourself of something. Solomon said, don't take seriously all the words which are spoken about you so that you'll not hear your servant cursing you. For you also realize that you likewise have many times cursed others. Oh. oh. That's a pretty good word, isn't it? Some of us are so determined to find out when somebody has said something about us. But let's be honest. Haven't you done the same thing? You know you have. You know what we all need? We all need to get a little bit thicker skin. We need one blind eye, one deaf ear, and real thick skin. And if you don't get that, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it in life. You're not going to make it in the church. And you're not going to make it at work. You're going to be a miserable, stomach-acid-eating wretch if you don't learn just to take some things that someone says that someone else said about you and do this. So what? You could even do a better thing and say this. You know what? I bet you've misunderstood them. Or you could do something even really radical and say this. Why are you telling me this? Because you want to go with me to them to confront them? Because see, if you really cared about me, you would have corrected them when you heard it and not told me. That's what real love would have done. Come here, let me tell you something about Mark. And I tell you about Mark. But because you love Mark, you say to me, you know what, I really love Mark. Why did you feel compelled to share that with me? That'd be novel, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't that be radical? We'd put a stop to all that just like that. You'd get about a dozen people doing that in the church and put a stop to it. And then, by the way, you don't go back to Mark and say, Mark, let me tell you what so-and-so said to me, but I corrected him. Oh, time out, time out. That ain't how it happens. That ain't how it happens. How it happens is, see, love conceals a matter. It doesn't mean that you cover over sin. You look the other way while somebody's committing adultery. That isn't what it means. It means this. It means that you don't got to tell every detail about everyone because the only person who's got the right to know that is God. And the last time I checked, there's only one God. Let me close this thing out by giving you three things you ought to do. You always got to leave with something to do when you get a sermon, don't you? Let me give you three things that you ought to do. Number one... I encourage you to take a self-inventory and see if you need to repent of misusing your own tongue. That doesn't necessarily mean that you need to go to the person or persons that you've been maligning and tell them. When I was in Bible college, a student, a single student, walked up to a married student's husband and he said to her, "I just got to." He said to him, "I got to come and I got to repent to you." And he said, "For what?" He said, "I've been lusting after your wife." <laughs> what? What's that about? Yeah, you don't do that. Steve, I just want to come up to you and I just want to tell you I've been maligning you to everybody in the church. Wait a second. I've been talking bad about you at dinner. Hold on, time out. You know what? If you've been causing a problem, it's causing a problem in the church, maybe. But if it's something you've been doing in private, then why don't you just repent and then do something novel? Stop. Okay? So what we ought to do in light of James is we ought to say, First thing I want to do is this. I want to do a self-evaluation and see if I've been eating others for dinner. And if so, I'm going to repent. I'm going to repent to God. I'm going to call my sin, sin. And then I'm going to do something novel. I'm going to stop. 
Number two, I think that we, what we need to do in light of this text is commit to be more forgiving of others too, right? Let's, let's commit to be more forgiving of others. Because notice what he said again in verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. He doesn't say, you all stumble in many ways, be like me. He says, we all stumble in many ways. Let's commit to be more forgiving. When we hear that somebody's spoken ill about us, let's learn to have a little bit thicker skin, a little bit less good hearing, and a little less sight, and be forgiving. Otherwise, we're going to be miserable. And we're going to make others miserable as well. Finally, to all of you teachers out there, Be aware that God will hold us accountable. Us. I put me in the category. He will hold us accountable for how we teach versus how we live. So let's make commitments to be grounded and faithful, not to be hypocrites. I think that's what James would have us to get from these first two verses this morning. So as we stand and sing, Are you washed in the blood? I pray that you would be committed to put a a, a bit in your mouth and to live what you teach.